Hola. Hello. Bienvenidos a Enredo. A podcast about raising bilingual children. I do like to read with my mama. This is Monica. And this is Paula. Bienvenidos a Entre Dos. A podcast about raising bilingual children. Why do some children who grow up hearing two languages only use one? Today's guest, Dr. Anik Dehauer, has been researching this question for more than 20 years. Dehauer is a professor of language acquisition and multilingualism at the University of Erfurt in Germany. Her 1990 book, The Acquisition of Two Languages from Birth, is considered pioneering work in bilingual acquisition. Aside from her linguistic research, Dehauer has also examined the social-emotional aspects of early bilingualism. She introduced the concept of harmonious bilingual development in 2006 and more recently founded the Harmonious Bilingualism Network. We spoke to her about her work, bilingual language development, and what she calls harmonious bilingualism. Here's our conversation. Well, it goes back a long way, namely when I was like 16, uh, which is a very long time ago. Um, I, I was wondering how was it possible that I could just say Dutch sentences just like that without thinking about it and how it was possible that I was able to do so in English as well. Now I did also uh, speak some school French and I, <clears throat> excuse me, and I did speak a little bit of, of German, but ma mainly I was sort of fluent already at that time, already in English as well, although Dutch is my very first language and I didn't really speak any English until I was maybe 14. So, um, but this was of course when I was 16, I was still in high school, uh, but this was a question that I was really interested in. And then um, in my second year of college, because I studied then, I studied English and Dutch because, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to study anything else really. Um, but then I, I took courses with a uh, professor, Hugo Bartens Beardsmore at the University of uh, Brussels. And I discovered that there is a whole academic field that studies bilingual people and how bilingualism works. And I was just like, whoa, that's something else. Dehauer majored in linguistics and then met a family who was raising their toddler in English and Dutch. She did babysitting for the family and asked if they would give her permission to record her interactions with the child. I started recording when she was two and a half. And um, yeah, the family had absolutely no problem with that. So I made recordings. And I didn't really know at that time, I didn't really know much at all about uh, child language acquisition. I took one seminar in child language acquisition in my fourth year of uh, university, I think, yes. Um, but I really didn't know that much about it. But I, I soon caught up and read up on things. And I learned a lot just from um, listening to this child and thinking about things. And of course, I transcribed all the things that she said, and I developed my own transcription system, more or less, because I didn't know uh, yet. 
at that time uh, that there were in fact uh, transcription systems around, but you know, I'm talking here about, um, this was when I started transcribing, it was 1979. So this was before the internet. And um, it was only when I then studied a year in Stanford, uh, California, that then I really dove into studies of language acquisition. And that's also how I met uh, through, through that year, I met um, uh, very famous scholars who before I didn't know, uh, who were working on how to transcribe child language data and so forth. And anyway, so then, you know, it just grew and grew and I wrote my dissertation about this particular child. So it was just a, a case study but already from the very beginning, once people knew, I mean, just lay people knew that I was studying early bilingual development. And of course, I was reading a lot about it. And at that time, uh, in 1980, 1981, 1982, you know, I, I was able to read um, in five languages. So Spanish, English, yes, I did. Actually, I knew some Spanish at that time. Uh, now it's less because I haven't used it much, but I can still read uh, Spanish um, or at least get most of the gist of linguistic uh, texts. Um, anyway, so I could read German, French, English and Dutch and some Spanish. And I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that uh, in 1981 or so, I had read about 95% of the literature available on early bilingual development in uh, these languages combined, which at that time was still possible uh, to do. Uh, but now it's totally impossible because there's so much of it. But at that time, there were very, very few people worldwide um, who had in fact studied uh, young bilingual children. As people found out about de Hauer's work, she was asked to speak to groups of parents in Belgium, where she lived at the time. Actually, um, speaking for parents and with parents and listening to parents' personal stories um, has been something that I've been doing, well, since I was, yeah, since 1980. So that's a long time. And that kind of went together with my research. And I hope I was able to bring something to parents at that time, even at that time already. Because um, of course I did know in theory, I knew a whole lot more about the topic than they did. Um, but at the same time, I also learned a great deal from talking to parents. Um, at the time, I was really working on the linguistics of development. So how did this actually come about? And I have continued doing that up until now. I continue to do that. But um, about yeah, 12, 13 years afterwards, I started writing about an issue that I had heard about from the parents which didn't come to me from my research. Well, just a little bit. I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. But it came from the parents and that was this great issue. Their child is not speaking their language back to them. And most parents were very unhappy about that. 
So that is then something, a topic that I started investigating in my research as much as I could, um, and which I'm still trying to get a grip on today. Um, but that's really a question that came from the bottom up, basically, you know, rather than it was my question, but I explored it in a theoretical fashion and in an empirical, so a scientific fashion, namely doing research about it. Um, yeah, so it did come a little bit through my research at the time as a doctoral student, because even though I had started by um, recording this single child, I soon looked for other English-Dutch bilingual children to record. And through, you know, my, my contacts, just word of mouth, I did find a few other children in Flanders to, to record. And, you know, parents were willing to let me into their house and let me record. And, you know, I'm saying this, parents allowed me to come into their house. This is not something that you could just take for granted, right? You know, to just let a stranger come into your house record conversations and come regularly, not just once. So you have to trust this person. You know, it's a, it's a very intimate thing, really, if somebody comes into your house and talks to your child also when you're not in the same room. So it's not, you know, something that you could, should take for granted. So I'm very grateful to these families. Um, and these were children also at slightly different ages, but like, in two cases, I basically stopped recording these children after a little while because they spoke no English. They spoke Dutch, the language of the, um, of the preschool, but they spoke no English. So through that experience, I knew, yeah, this is for real. Parents are not making it up that their children, they're very young children, these were all children between three and five, that they, uh, did not uh, speak one of the languages that in spite of hearing the language frequently and often from, often from their mothers, um, and yet they did not speak it. So um, it's been an insight of mine from the very beginning that this exists, but at, you know, in the beginning years of my career, I didn't really focus on that topic more on what happens when children actually do speak two languages and how do the uh, languages evolve and how do they sound. Last year, De Hauer published a paper titled, Why do so many children who hear two languages speak just a single language? We asked her to walk us through some of the variables that impact bilingual outcomes in children. Um, well, one very important thing is that people should speak a lot to children. Now, I, when I say that, and when I say that to scholars, they say, yeah, duh, I mean, isn't that normal? But I know that many people don't even think about it. And in a monolingual setting, so when there's only one language involved, uh, yeah, it's also important there, but it's not that important because if you, as a mother, you're the silent type, well, you know, dad will be more talkative. There'll be other people who are speaking that same language to your child. So there's kind of a compensation going on, but the child can only learn from the words that you speak to it. Do not believe, please. I mean, the words do come through the air, 
Um, but children cannot learn language unless indeed they are learning these words that come to their ears through the air or their hands. But I'm now talking mainly about oral speech, yes? So um, that is so important, the amount of speech, the amount of repetition of little words, you know, when we're talking to little babies. So you cannot, um, you, you have to start speaking to your baby from the very beginning, although it's hard because your baby doesn't speak back, but still get into the mode of actually describing what you're doing. Oh, and now mommy's going to get you your bottle. Oh, or now mommy's going to take you to the bed so you can snuggle up and drink mommy's milk, you know, stuff like that. Um, describe what you're doing. Oh, what? you know, about the diaper or whatever, you know, even if it's not that much fun, but just talk, talk to your child. And maybe you need to push yourself a little bit. It's worth it. What you're doing is really um, helping your child develop language and language is the cornerstone or yeah, one of the major cornerstones of development. Your child's not gonna do well in school if they have a very small vocabulary, for instance. It really helps to build up vocabulary, um, to talk a lot to your child. It's really words per minute that matter a lot. Now, so in a monolingual situation, if you're not so talkative as a mother or a father, other people will compensate for that. Now, in a bilingual setting, that's not going to happen so much because other people are not necessarily going to be speaking the same language that you speak to them, uh, that you speak to your children. Um, so um, you need to basically compensate a little more for that and do a little more extra there. You know, book reading is so important. So you can start with this the moment that your baby at two months of age can in fact already in your arms look at the very clear and attractive picture or two of them and you can just sing a little short rhyme about it you can just make it up it's good for your own creativity and um even though your baby can only pay attention for like five seconds at that time maybe you know they can they just can't do it for longer that's something repeat it and get into the habit of doing it and then if you do this until the, and once the child is seven or eight months of old of age well they'll come and bring you a little book to read with them you know because they enjoy this time it's also wonderful for bonding with your child yes and of course it's through language also that you bond so this is so important to speak a lot with your child not barrage, you know, there are some parents of somewhat older children who are just constantly bombarding children with questions. Now, that's not what I mean. You know, you got to speak regularly, but with your child, not just at your child, with your child, and also allow your child to respond and take whatever they say to Jen, um, say your next sentence, you know, uh, to just take you know, you don't have to rush through it. You just have to use the opportunities to speak to your child when you're in the car, 
when you're in the supermarket shopping, you know, rather than ignore your child's questions, listen to them and give them an answer, even though you're tired. Parenting is tiring and it's a lot of hard work. And in a bilingual setting, it's even more work, I would say. Um, but it's really worth it. Another important factor is to get your child to speak back to you in the language you're speaking to them. Doesn't mean you always have to speak one language to your child, no. But within one conversation, in one particular setting, it would be good to stick to one language if you're worried or if you want your child to speak that language, yeah? If you're not concerned, well, you can do whatever you like, but it is my experience that most parents are concerned. They want their child to be able to talk to grandma, for instance, yes. So it's really, you know, and, and many parents feel like even abandoned by their children, even if they're very young, if they don't speak the same language back to them. Language is identity, belonging, emotion also, yeah. So in order for you to achieve this, because it really is unfortunately up to parents at this very early stage, yes, um, you have to try and create a need for the child to talk back in the language that you're speaking to them. So if they're using a word from the other language, when they're very young, they will start to occasionally do that. I mean, this doesn't mean they're confused. It's just they still have to learn so much, right? That, you know, this kind of sound goes with, um, you know, in, in some other situation, but not in that situation. So you have to kind of help them along. And you can do that by saying, um, oh, I didn't understand you, which is possible that you truly did not understand. Because if you're just thinking like, this is our Spanish time, then you're in this Spanish mode in your mind. Yeah. And to a two-year-old, you know, it's, it's not like, yeah, you're not pretending. And you can also say to your two-year-old, oh, mommy's head, now mommy's head is full of Spanish words. Yes, only Spanish. Right now, I only have room for Spanish. I can only think of Spanish right now. A two-year-old will accept that, a three-year-old also. So it's not, you're not lying to your child or anything like that. Um, and you can say what? And then often your child will, will change the language automatically. Or if they don't know the right word, you're going to have to give it to them because maybe you have in the meantime understood what they're trying to say in, in English, for instance. So you're going to give them a um, translation of what they're trying to say. And then you can repeat that and say, yeah, that's it, bravo. Yeah, this is the word, yeah. You can say it, right, try it out. And by strategies like that, you're going to create a normalcy a habit that the child is going to respond in the same language to you that you are speaking to them at that moment. Now, of course, when daddy comes into the house, into the kitchen, you can switch to English. And then your child will learn also to switch to English, especially if daddy doesn't understand any Spanish. That may not be a bad thing to do, right? Um, I mean, I'm not saying you have to switch to, to English. You can continue speaking Spanish and maybe your husband will also learn to understand some Spanish together with your young child. It's not impossible. Um, 
but it's okay for you to use two languages to, with your child, but it should be in very different circumstances and definitely within one real conversation and one same setting, try to stick to one language. So this also means you've got to be sort of aware of what it is you're doing and aware of what your child is doing. But in some cases, it's very automatic. Like when a two-year-old asks for a cookie, like, cookie? Well, I think most English-speaking parents would say, would not give the cookie until the child has says, please. So they're paying attention to how the child is asking for things. It's just in that kind of same vein, really, um, that you are paying more attention to which language the child is using. So I think these are the two main factors supporting the active use of two languages by young children. There are many more uh, factors, but these are the two main ones. But what about external factors, such as the start of formal schooling away from the home? I'm glad you brought that up because indeed, you know, things start to be really challenging when children attend preschool and continuing later schools themselves. They're also, they're like immersed in one other language for a long day. It's tiring when they come home, they're tired. Um, they've learned new words in that school language that they don't necessarily know in the home, other language at home yet. Um, and there's probably also some pressure going on at school. Some, well, pressure, it, it, it can be very implicit, but it depends a little bit on the educational approach at the school. I'll talk a little bit about that more in a moment, but uh, what you can do yourself is definitely in the first week that your child is going to school again, um, make sure that the parent, whichever parent is speaking the language that is not used at school, that they're home when the child gets home from school and that you take the time. So if you can afford it, take off a few hours to be able to spend that time after school in that first week together with your child. And why is that? Because it's really important that, you know, the child will probably, even on the first day, come back home and start speaking to you in the language that they've never spoken to you before. And you'll be like, ooh, what's going on? At the same time, you're probably a little anxious depending on the age of your child, like how did it work out and what happened at school? You know, it's normal to be concerned about what happened with your child for the first day. You know, school day is a big deal. So um, what you want to do is you want to have time to be patient with your child let them, you know, don't immediately interrupt them when they start speaking English to you, although you speak Spanish with them normally. Let them do, you know, let them tell their story. Have them, you know, relax a moment. Yeah. Okay. And then you're going to ask them again in Spanish and you say, look, I know you already told me all these things in English, but, you know, maybe I can help you find some words for the things that you learned at school in Spanish, because I really would, you know, you know how it is with my head filled with the Spanish words, you know, um, that depends, you know, you can use that 
with younger children, okay? When they're a little older, you can start really talk, saying, you know, my language is really important to me and you're a part of me really in many ways and of my, you're part of the family. So, you know, that would be great if we could just continue to, you can be much more explicit with an older child, of course. And many children will be very happy to oblige if you're being honest and authentic with them about it. It's also important to create motivation towards the non-school or non-dominant language. And that can happen through contacts, of course, with the relatives who speak the language, trips and so forth, um, other uh, friends in the community that you might know, but it's not easy, it's not easy especially if at the school there's a very monolingual bias. I really do um, call it a bias, even though it may be implicit, towards just this one language. And I know, and it's difficult in the United States, but it's difficult in any um, Western country, uh, which has a more monoglossic ideology where you know everything's just in one language in, in the public sphere basically um but it would be great to then be able to maybe talk to the teachers and the director at the school and you're probably not the only parent in in the situation to talk about them you know how is it possible to create more of a respectful attitude towards all children's languages in the classroom, because it won't only be Spanish. There'll be children with Mandarin, with Russian, oh, with, uh, I don't know, Portuguese, um, Swahili, uh, you name it. Um, indigenous languages from the United States, it's, it's all possible. So there is a big, there's a lot of uh, wealth of languages present in the classroom and for teachers to then use that wealth to the benefit of everybody, really, to recognize that, yeah, oh my gosh, you know, you know that, do you know, you know that word in, in, in your language? What is it? You know, that thing, oh, wow, let me try and say it, yeah? That is a very small token, but it is so important, it's symbolic, yeah? It's showing, first of all, attention to children's languages and it's showing some appreciation. So uh, teachers can actually learn to say hello in all the languages of the children in the classroom, but they'll need help from somebody, namely from the parents. So at first, you know, or from older children in the school, depends on, you know, what kind of school we're talking about or preschool we're talking about. But this is so important. So without the school becoming multilingual, because that's often not possible. It's just that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having an openness towards all the languages that all the children in the group have brought to school. And it's going to benefit the metalinguistic awareness of all the children in the classroom. What does that mean? Well, it's going to be, means their ability to think about language and language use, something which is really important for them later on to learn to read and write and learn other languages, of course, yes. And reading and writing, that's another aspect. You know, when your child's a little older and has already got the basics of English reading and writing, then it's probably time to figure out 
how to invest and you yourself, you can also help uh, with that. We have some tips on our website about learning to read and write in two languages. Um, because learning to read and write in also uh, the language from home, it gives this language more value. Nowadays, parents can also take advantage of the online tools available to us, such as books in other languages and ways to connect with other children who speak the same language, to do activities online and have conversations. Uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And yeah, uh, when children are a little older, they may, of course, uh, resist some of it. But that's that's individual and you know, there's plenty of children who do not resist at all and who are, you know, speaking two languages, fine. And yeah, don't expect them to know all their languages equally well, because that's normal too. You know, there's some languages come and go, like for instance, with my Spanish, you know, I, I did at a time, you know, when I took really a lot of Spanish classes. I, yep. I was doing pretty well in Spanish, but, you know, I haven't invested for a long time. So, okay, it's gone down. Yeah, that happens. So, but that doesn't mean it can't come back. So as long as we're uh, in good mental health, we can learn languages, we can improve. So there's a lot to be, op there's lots to be optimistic about. There is a lot to be optimistic about when it comes to language maintenance, yet how a person experiences bilingualism, whether it be positive, neutral, or conflictive, cannot be overlooked. That intersection between language and well-being is at the core of harmonious bilingualism. So what I call harmonious bilingualism, or for younger children, I mean families with younger children, harmonious bilingual development, um, I really um, started thinking about that, um, yeah, a while ago already, but you know, things take time to um, get clear in your head. There's a lot of things to do always, but what it, that, that really the lived experience that people have with the bilingual situation, as it also affects family life and interpersonal relationships within the family, that is really so important. So, I continue to try and understand uh, the reasons for why particularly, you know, some people indeed may feel shame because they're not, they feel they failed at being a parent. Definitely they feel they failed towards their own parents if their young children, so the middle ones, you know, if their children do not speak the grandparents' language. So they feel like, they, yeah, they're ashamed. They feel like they've not done their job as a parent because they've, yeah. And this happens, unfortunately. And that has to do with indeed this, um, you know, there is a lot of pressure from outside the family. But then the question is, you know, how can you within the family, how can you bolster yourself? How can you strengthen yourself to kind of work, you know, not against maybe, because against, if you, if you just go against and you fight, you know, you can lose and you probably will. So you've got to be flexible enough to 
handle this barrage of um, pressure to conform to the standard, you know, the general language actually. And um, that happened. And, and this is why I think one reason is you, you're saying, yes, there's a lot of information out there. Indeed there is, but it's very dispersed. And a lot of it is just fake news. I'm sorry, you know, uh, right, yes. And one of the major points of fake news that comes from pediatricians, for instance, and early childhood educators as well, not just in the United States, also in the United Kingdom, in Germany, Finland, you name it, is, oh, it's confusing for your child to learn two languages. So you gotta, you know, stop speaking that language that we don't use right here. They never say to stop speaking the school language, right? They never do that. So let me tell you, you know, there's absolutely no evidence uh, that that is the case. Not at all. To the contrary, you know, when children know two languages well, they're going to learn more language better. They need a very strong basis in, in two languages because they're living with two languages you know, they are in a, it's not a choice. You're just living where you are and living and you're born in the family that you're born into. So also, you know, to tell parents to give up speaking a particular language to their child goes against the United Nations Convention for Human Rights and to the Convention for Child Rights. Let me be very clear about that because it's not, it's failing to show respect for languages and children's languages and identity and families' languages. And there's no evidence that giving up one language is gonna help the other. So it's, it's the same thing like, um, you're not gonna play um, football better if you stop playing tennis. No, you're gonna play football better if you practice more football, but it's not because you're giving up tennis, okay? So that's with language is the same thing. It's a matter of, you know, you need to practice a lot in both these languages. But I think that that is one reason that a lot of parents in the family, they get confused. You know, they, they do see the pediatrician as a person with expertise. Well, they have expertise about medical issues. But as far as I know, pediatricians have no training in early bilingual language development, nor very little in general in language development. Occasionally they might have like a small, small course about it. They are not the experts on early bilingual development. And uh, it's very unfortunate that they as a person of authority and including early childhood teaching staff, um, the parents, well, they listen to them and they're, because they're not sure, they have no experience with this. So that's often one factor why at home then patterns of language uh, use change because of these very strong pieces of advice, which unfortunately, you know, that is still going on even today. And it is so unfortunate. So that's a big factor. And of course, puts a lot of stress. Now at this 
very moment, at this very instant, I would like to say to anybody who's listening to this, yeah, if they have a case like this and they're having a problem talking with their pediatrician or their um, or the staff person at their child's preschool or childcare center, they can just get in touch with me, okay? And I'll be happy to speak to that pediatrician or to that person, that staff member. Yes, it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, and I know, and this was a problem when I started doing my PhD work, so more than four decades ago, and it continues to be a problem. Um, it's a lot, there's a lot of prejudice out there. And that's very unfortunate. Um, yeah, and for the rest, well, the shame, well, I can understand the shame, but this is then why it becomes so important to try and make sure that your child does speak the language you speak to them. Um, and of course, if you yourself don't really speak that language very well, well, then you can think, how come that that happened? How come that that happened? And there are many reasons for that. Um, when people move to another country, their prior, their primary interest is not necessarily the new language or sticking to the old language. No, I mean, uh, you know, there's so much that that can happen. You know, when sometimes people have to move to another language uh, to another country for really difficult reasons like poverty, uh, being persecuted. Well. You know, then it appears that thinking about language is like a luxury problem. And I understand that. So there can be these very extra language, you know, things that have nothing to do with language per se, that are going to affect um, how much attention you're going to be able to use uh, to give to language. Uh, we have this, uh, this study already oh, a long time ago, these um, interviews that, um, Lily Wong Fillmore, a professor of education did. She was a professor in, um, in California. And, and that was at a time around the time when there were a lot of these uh, refugees from Vietnam who came to California. And a lot of, and most of these people, parents and grandparents, they didn't know any English. And they also had absolutely no time to learn English themselves. Um, they had to work so hard. And so there are plenty of stories there of then their children and their grandchildren just speaking English, basically, and not being able to converse in Vietnamese. Also because these parents didn't have the time to spend with their children and talk to their children. And that is heart-wrenching then. You know, and that the effect of that on the children's language use isn't visible immediately, probably. You know, it's just after a few years that people realize, oh, you know, after they've really arrived and after they've started to get out of poverty, um, oh, it's gone. My child doesn't speak Vietnamese with me. So that is heart-wrenching. And there's no easy solutions to those kinds of stories. Uh, and that's unfortunate, definitely. When parents and children don't speak the same language, relationships may be strained. 
but Howard calls this conflictive bilingualism. Here's more. Uh, unfortunately, yes, we do know that from uh, a lot of our research, actually in the United States mostly and in Canada, involving adult uh, adolescents, adolescents uh, who live in families uh, with parents who recently um, immigrated. So the children might have been born in the United States or Canada, or but, but the parents were the, f the first to immigrate, and. Um, that in, in many of these families, this is well known, uh, the children may not or may start refusing, especially as adolescents, to speak the language um, that their uh, parents speak at home. And their parents may not be, because they are first time immigrants, they may not be very fluent in English yet. Yes, uh, for various reasons. Um, so, when then they did these big, big, big uh, studies, and indeed the adolescents who answered their parents in English, they felt themselves emotionally distant from their parents. And their parents felt that they had no more authority over their adolescents. Now we know adolescence is a very difficult time for any parent and also for the adolescents themselves. So if then there is this feeling between parents and adolescents that they can't really communicate deeply on a, on a real level because of a, of a difference in the languages used, because that's it when you're using two different languages in what it should be an intimate relationship that does create a symbolic diff, uh, distance. Yes. And so language choice, meaning which language is being used in what circumstance, that has such a strong symbolic value. And so you might understand one another on the referential level, but the very fact that you're using different languages with each other in that kind of a relationship signifies some kind of discord. So that is really can create conflict within the family more and more, but it is related to what language there is now. And yes, indeed, in these families, you can say, yeah, but there are lots of other reasons why parents and adolescents don't get along too well, right? Yes, there are. But in these uh, studies, it was very clear that those um, adolescents who spoke the same language as their parents, that they had a much better, you know, were much closer to their parents than these, that doesn't mean their uh, relationship was perfect, but there was no issue because of the language that they were being used, that they were using. And also their parents felt, you know, yeah, much more in control or, you know, much, much better, they felt much better about their adolescent child if their adolescent child was speaking uh, their language to them. And it wasn't just about which language they spoke, but also like how well did they speak each language. So um, that is just a very basic example of how, um, yeah, bilingual usage, bilingual language choice affects 
interpersonal relationships within the family. And this can have, we know that, long-lasting effects on family life. It's hard enough to be a parent and to be a child also, you know. I think we all have our hang-ups about our parents, uh, whether, you know, uh, reasonable or not, but we all do. So, um, but if in addition, we have this language issue going on between us, uh, it becomes really hard, you know. Um, and, and, par and people do need some, yeah, family is usually families there, right, to help you. And uh, you don't like, you don't want strife within the family. And certainly not when you're an adolescent, you need all the support from your parents you can get. And um, yeah, both, it goes both ways, of course, but at that time, it's a very delicate time in a person's life. So yeah, that is one example where it's really, um, it gets um, difficult. Uh, now we don't know enough about so harmonious research into harmonious or conflictive bilingualism, but I want to focus on harmonious bilingualism because I think that that is kind of what what most parents would want and and families would want. And it doesn't mean it has to be all positive. No, it could just mean that there's no problems because of language choices, basically. Um, it's very simple, really. But what is not simple is for us as researchers to really understand all the processes that go on and um, how it might differ for families with young children, then families with primary school age children, and then uh, going on into adolescent children, and then young adult children who themselves don't have children yet, and so on and so forth. And um, and what are the, there, there probably are then differing, um, uh, changing forces that um, affect what's happening at within the family really. Um, and, and those are obviously different uh, in adolescence than, than when a, a child is, is uh, is a baby right so um but we don't know that well enough yet and uh at the moment what i'm seeing is that basically though um it's parents everywhere who in a in a bilingual setting who want their children to speak their language it doesn't matter whether you come from china or whether you come from alaska or whether you come from south africa so it's pretty universal um, I think that's an important insight. Also, I do not at the moment see any evidence that there are any differences depending on how educated parents are or how poor they are. I think um, those feelings also are pretty general, but we need more research on it, of course. So um, I'm hoping to write, soon start writing a book about it, which is going to be able to really dive into it a lot more and hopefully you know compare studies with each other and so forth yeah but there is a lot that we still need to find out but um definitely when children do not speak their parents language that is for many many people a uh, a very negative thing so yeah uh that can really um carry a lot of pain for a long time.
We asked Howard if she thought it would be a good idea as parents to be more flexible with adolescents and allow them to make their languages their own. In other words, instead of projecting our views of how we envision their bilingualism, should we allow some flexibility to achieve harmony and well-being? This is something really difficult in general for parents to deal with is, you know, if they themselves were good students in high school, for instance, and their adolescent mm, turns out not to be so great or not, you know, there's a lot of strife. And this is true. You know, we probably need to be more open to our adolescents in general and more flexible, especially also with regard to language use. Uh, it's a, a particular parent, it's part of a particular parenting style. The problem is with most, with many parents, they've never been parents before. Plus they've never been with that particular child before, or they have other experiences with an older child that they had, their firstborn child, they had absolutely no problem. Everything went fine because that other child was different and they were different because they were younger at that time. And then their second child comes along and the second child's not only uh, trying to identify away from the parents, but also away from the older sibling. So then it becomes like, yeah, what are you gonna do? Now, all of a sudden, yes, I'm having to be more flexible. But at the same time, we know that also parents are more flexible with, uh, with second and third children than with the very first. Um, but you're quite right, yes, our expectations shouldn't be so great, uh, maybe, but this is, again, um, focuses on the very importance of laying the foundation when children are in the first decade of life, really, laying the foundation for language. Children, you know, adolescents, they're not going to lose the ability so quickly of speaking a particular language if they've been speaking it for 10, 11, 12 years. But in those early years, children need the practice in order to automatize these language processes these language productions, also these speaking processes. And so uh, if you have laid that groundwork when children were younger and when for many reasons, it's perhaps easier, it's still a lot of work, but it is out of, within that relationship, that child-parent relationship is probably easier than when they're adolescents, yes. So if you've laid that groundwork and they can in fact speak uh, the language that you've spoken to them since they were born, then yeah, you can afford to be a little flexible because you're not gonna have to worry so much that they're going to lose that language. Plus by then they'll already have established patterns of communication with their grandparents, for instance. And this is so important because um, parents are not just they're not the first generation. They're compared to their own parents, they're the second generation. And a lot of parents are caught between, especially when their children are adolescents, then, you know, this comes the time very often when their own parents, so the adolescents' grandparents are starting to be, you know, to have health issues and so forth. So uh, it's, it's becoming more important then you know, the grandparents perhaps, I don't know. Um, but 
if by then the grandchildren are already able to speak to the grandparents, well, then that's fine. So because that's really important. And of course, adolescents are going to have to make their own choices, and many do. And it's their right to make their own choices. Um, so, and, and yes, and definitely like one thing that you should never do is punish your child for not speaking your language. You shouldn't do this, this at any age um, because then it becomes, you know, then it's very easy to use, to start using language as a weapon. And that is just absolutely not, uh, not the idea. That's not going to help uh, create or continue harmonious bilingualism. De Howard's research in the field of bilingual language acquisition and development is extensive. In the summer of 2020, she launched Habelnet, the Harmonious Bilingualism Network. Before ending our conversation, we asked her to tell us more about it. Yes, so the Harmonious Bilingualism Network um, under my direction um, has several members. So we have um, we have an advisory board with a few eminent scholars and including also a speech therapist. So Habelnet is really uh, so harmonious bilingualism network, Habelnet we call it. Uh, you can find us on habilnet.org, H-A-B-I-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G in four languages. Um, but what we're trying to do is we're really trying, and that's fairly unique, trying to bring together people from academia and very experienced people who have worked with bilingual families for a long time and who have built up a lot of experience there. And I find it particularly um, rewarding when the insights that um, I as a researcher have come to when they are completely shared or also expressed independently by people who come from other professions as just happened also with me recently, just a couple of days ago for the International Mother Language Day. Um, we interviewed a lady in Germany who comes from social work and inter intercultural mediation. And she also, so she does not come from research and academia as such. And, you know, when she says things about bilingual development and how to work with parents and schools, I could have said it. Or uh, the speech therapist who is part of our advisory board could have said it. And that I think is so wonderful that all these, that we come to the same insights, basic insights regarding harmonious bilingualism and the best development for children and families uh, from such different perspectives, which creates a big base, uh, yeah, a much, much more of a foundation. So um, we're there for researchers as well. So we also have uh, funding opportunities for researchers, not just for researchers, but definitely for researchers. And we try to post uh, information for researchers, but also a lot for families. And we offer free consultation services for everybody over the whole world. And we also have somebody who can do it in Spanish. So um, you can come to our website and um, request a consultation. Um, our services at the moment are uh, free. Um, it depends a little bit on our volume, 
Um, but for now, um, we're doing okay, so it's still free. And once maybe it changes, then what we might ask is a contribution to UNICEF, for instance, right? Um, but um, I think it's very important that our information that we have on our site, it is really vetted. It is not fake news. It relies on the latest scientific insights and not only the scientific insights, of course, also the experience from our non-academic uh, contributors. Um, and I think that that is really very um, important because there are many websites out there with supposed information for multilingual families, information that is often, often relies on the experience of a single family. I'm not saying that that is not valid. Yes, it is valid, but then to present that as, let's say, the basis for advice for other families, well, that's not the way to go, I don't think. So uh, we're trying to counteract that a little bit. And uh, we've been going only since June, 2020. Uh, so uh, a lot of people have not yet discovered us, but this growing and growing. We have a YouTube channel. We have yeah, also a Vimeo channel, which is more directed towards scholars, but our YouTube video, uh, YouTube channel is more directed to um, parents. And we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter feed. Yes, so um, we're busy and uh, we have different kinds of membership. So um, yeah, take a look and hopefully, uh, you'll find us and hopefully you find something there that can be of use to you and your family. Thank you to Dr. Anita Hauer for speaking with us about her experience and research. Please visit the Harmonious Bilingualism Network's website, havilnet.org to learn more about Harmonious Bilingualism. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook or Instagram at Entre Dos Podcasts. Hasta la próxima. Nos vemos.